Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. I'm Neil Armand, your host for this series of podcasts. Welcome to episode five. Thank you for being with us. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking to Rachel Hyam, who's the managing director of IT at BT. We actually filmed it a few weeks ago uh, at BT Centre in London. And why did we do that? Well, firstly, Rachel is probably one of the most inspirational leaders that I know. And that, I mean, that's, that's the key. Uh, but if you look at the department she's managing, firstly, it has quite a lot of people working within it or for her or for her direct reports and, and down. Uh, so she's really aware of what do we need in order to remain current uh, in the world. I mean, obviously, she's at the cutting edge of things like AI and, and these sort of things. So is aware of what skills are going to be the ones that are going to carry us through in the future. She's also, because of the changing landscape within, within her department, within BT, is used to managing significant change projects uh, that, that need to carry people from within the organization with that. And that's one of the big things that we talked about was, was how to achieve that. We also got into all sorts of conversations about social purpose that I wasn't quite expecting and was really excited by. So we thoroughly enjoyed filming the, the, the podcast, the recording it, and we hope you enjoy it as much. Um, I'll see you on the other side, but Mason, cue the intro. Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. The whole universe is in a state of entropy. If you can unlock that higher motivation, they'll be with you. How do you create an environment where people can find meaning at work? That can create the needed culture change. How does radical change happen? You know it's a good business. In terms of our evolution, we were not required to have a conscious understanding of complex systems. What creates great innovation in the social arena? It does it for you taking action. Have some real sense of control over our lives. Rachel, thank you for joining us today. On it's great the... to be here. Oh, extraordinary to see you again. Mm -hmm. um, with your experience uh, as a very senior leader within one of the biggest companies in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be quite interesting to just ask you, what do you think organizations are going to look like in 10 years' time? Do you think there are going to be big changes or uh, you know, what's the stuff that's coming through now that, that's going to be different? Or, and obviously, again, with your IT hat on, there must mm -hmm. be some stuff in that space as well. Yeah, I think there's some significant macro themes that are building um, and building because of the broader economic and political and social environment around us that we'll start to see really landing sort of eight to ten years from now. And I think the first one is, is organisations realising they have to be deeply rooted in a social purpose to attract the talent they need. Um, you know, BT's mission is to use the power of communications for a better world. And I think we can, we're going to have to really amplify that in our messaging to attack, attract the talent that's going to be quite scarce in emerging fields like AI, like nanotech, like whatever the use cases for 5G become. Um, because the, the, who we're competing against will be a very broad set of um, startups um, or, or social, yes. social organizations. It won't be the traditional other telcos. Um, that's that's going to be an interesting interesting shift. And how do you do that in terms of not just making it a tagline mm. and really have it as a social purpose and not just a greenwash purpose? 
Yeah, to make it deeper, you have to fundamentally embed it in your product and service outcomes that your customers see and feel every day and your other stakeholders recognise as well. So we've got a, an interesting stakeholder set in VT where we have um, you know, the government as a customer and, and uh, a highly engaged regulator. Uh, as well as our shareholders mm. and our corporate and residential customers, um, both here in the UK and internationally. So we've got quite a complex set of stakeholders to, to, to work with and respond to. Um, so I think they all need to recognise that actually they're feeling and seeing and experiencing our products and services make a difference to their social outcomes and, and their needs um, as as communities and society evolves over the next 10 years. You know, are we solving for the um, increasing aged population that, that's, that's okay. appearing? Are we helping young people and the disenfranchised acquire the digital skills they need to operate effectively in the new world and the digitized world? And we're not making sure we're not leaving people behind. Yes. Um, and how do you differentiate that from just normal commercial pressures or, or, or something like that? Because I'm, I'm hearing something very subtle mm. in this, that it would be very easy just to say it and go, oh, you were helping young people to do that. But it's like, well, they're your customers. Well, they're mm -hmm. coming through. We're selling to them. Yeah. What's different about that when it's for social purpose? I think it's an and. So I think you're still doing your normal commercial activities. Um, but as you're doing that, you have to deeply embed those principles in the way you design, deliver, operate, and, and, and service those new products and services yeah. or outputs of your organization, whatever they are. An example is, you know, the last uh, 12 to 18 months, we have um, pivoted our focus for CSR activities, a volunteering activity we encourage our every employee to undertake, um, from being just going to do whatever you, you like to do in your local community to actually let's really focus that in on helping young people acquire digital skills and get ready for the workplace of the future. And so the power of that is that we're suddenly pivoting 110,000 people yeah. to that singular purpose. Um, and we're, we're, we're tracking that, but we're also setting up um, great ways for them to do that through. So they don't have to go and find the way they make that impact. They can join our barefoot scheme or our work ready scheme. Um, and they've got the assets, they've got the channels, they've got the way to, to find those who are in need of that help get out there, do that as a team or as an individual, um, and then get recognised for that internally through you know, award schemes and we, we count volunteering hours and, and uh, the, the, the usual way to, to celebrate that impact. I think that's wonderful. It's one of the things, back when I was running Kickass, that I, you know, with the companies I used to work with, it was like, why is your CSR all over the place? Mm. You've got these incredible skills internally, yeah. and you're just going, oh, let's do something nice over there, mm -hmm. rather than going, how do we bring mm -hmm. these incredible skills we've got and change the world with them? So Absolutely, and align it to hear that. intrinsically to our purpose as well. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, enabling digital literacy is absolutely part of using the power of communications to make that better world. Um, yes. If people feel en are engaged and feel educated and active citizens um, as they grow through their lives, um, that's a fantastic outcome for society. And how do, you, how do you get everyone on the same page? How do you not have a few passionate people like you? And I've worked with you enough to know that you can drive quite a few people <laughs> around you towards something, but over... <laughs> such a huge organization how do you get leadership for instance to be reflecting that rather than just yeah. having it as a side bit it's all about role modeling and it's about over communicating um so it's creating the the, the absolute imperative in case for change and telling a narrative that speaks not just to the, the 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 mind but also to the heart yes um you know it's a it's a amazing thing to go into a school and talk to a group of children 
and see little light bulbs go off about the possibilities of a, of a career in technology. It's like, I didn't know that existed. That sounds incredible. I'm going to change the GCSE options I take or the A-level options I take. Yeah. Or I'm really going to consider different careers in STEM, for example. Um, so it's, it's telling those stories of the difference we can make, making it a really personal-based narrative, um, and then having your leadership uh, understand those stories, experience it themselves, and then be authentic role models that, that go out and be an advocate for, for that shift. Um, and celebrating those that are doing it really well, and that, I think, inspires others to follow uh, in, their, in their footsteps. Okay, so we've got this this sense of real purpose that's that's starting to mm -hmm. emerge as an important thing for the future mm. what else do you think will be different in 10 years time in with, within the work landscape i think partnerships will be a strong theme so the way we design and deliver the products and services of the future will be more through partnership than ever before mm. um, and we're starting to see that already in BT. So if you look at our um, our TV and sport platforms, we don't create our own content for our TV platform. We have our BT Sport channel and we create content there. Yes. But the content we aggregate on that TV platform comes from multiple partners, Netflix, Apple, um, and, and some of the, the, the TV channels you know, in, in the States, like CBS, for example. Um, we, we realize that we cannot possibly um, make the business case for becoming a Netflix or becoming an Amazon Prime or yes. becoming a, a, a film or TV studio. Um, but we can um, aggregate great experiences for our customers on the channels we have through the touch points we already have with our existing customer base and our future customer base and, and create a great experience nevertheless. So um, I think organisations will will start as new um, ways of experience, experiencing content and communications appear, then we're going to have to partner to uh, to deliver those nice thank you um anything else anything else on that you're just because you're in such a unique position mm. i think with how things are likely to be different because mm -hmm. i'm sure you've had quite a few interesting board meetings on this topic <laughs> not asking you to give away any of the board papers or anything like that, but anything else you've got partnerships you've got this social purpose anything else that you think is going to be a a sign of of, of the future I think the, the workforce of the future will um, have very different expectations of the place they work. And it links back to my first point around having to, wanting to see a social purpose in the organisation they work for and actually making conscious choices about who they give their time to. Yes. It's, it's going to be it's part of the third element I'm talking about here. But I think it's broader than that as well. I think um, people will, want, will be more aware of the value of the skills and experience they have and there'll be more onus on them as an individual to continue to grow and learn and evolve that skill set. Yes. Um, historically, I think workforces have been quite passive and have waited for the organization to say, well, we need you to acquire this skill, whether it's agile or DevOps or yeah. you know, service design, and give them the, um, the content and the interventions to have them build those skills and then put them into practice. I think now we're going to see a trend where organizations will... Um, be expecting employees to manage their own uh, skill acquisition um, and they'll provide a, a broader range of ways to learn and acquire knowledge but it will be much more self-driven by the employee okay. um, with, with a, a clear direction given by the organisation of we think Agile is going to be really important to us or we think AI is going to be really important to us and then allowing 
employees to say, well, I'll sign up for that. I will you know, invest my time um, and my energy in, uh, in making that shift. Which, as a, mm. an educator, would make a very big difference to Huge people's difference. motivation. I yeah. mean, one of the things we find definitely is that people on our open programs who've mm. actually put their hand in their pocket themselves are normally at least three times as motivated as the people exactly. we, we do the same course to potentially within an organization. So a mm. lot of the work we have to do is around motivation before yep. we can even begin. Mm. If that change is taking place, then... Mm-hmm. I'm all for that. That's Absolutely. great. <laughs> and I wonder if the new generation will, will take that a step further um, and think about, well, actually, I'm just going to be a broker of my yes. skills. I don't want to be tied to a single organisation for even three years, yes. uh, let alone a lifetime. Um, I will uh, bid my skills for the most interesting project I see in the marketplace. Yes. Um, and it's down to us as organisations to say, this is the best project you can work on right now for your skill area. And it almost... Yeah, have a PR campaign around that to uh, to attract them in. Interesting, and then I suppose from a comms, uh, from a, a IT perspective, how that communication of remote working and flexi working and you know, portfolio working mm. can actually take place and, and and be effective. Yeah, because that's there's there's two trends happening at the moment. One is the trend I've spoken about, but the counter trend to that is agile. Yes, because to effectively work in an agile way requires a high level of co-location and presence yes and so you've got these two competing forces so it'd be interesting to see which wins out over the 10 years and i won't, don't, want, don't want to place a bet right now <laughs> <laughs> probably end up with a sort of highly distributed federated agile or something or, or the compromise yes. but it's going to be an interesting set of tensions um, about whether organizations think they need to build the uber headquarters you know, like apple in cupertino or yes um or whether they allow a more homeworking uh, hub-based model where people can get together as and when they need to, but also disperse and, and be comfortable with that. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Mm. Now, I know from our previous conversations that you're leading an immense amount of change within the organisation at the mm. moment. From this conversation now, it, I can see why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how are you approaching that transformation differently or what are you you Mm. doing to to make it effective what are your lessons from it so we came together as an IT organization um, about 15 months ago and as a new leadership team we wanted to spend some time reflecting on what are the macro changes happening around us so we spent a significant amount of time thinking through what are the changing customer expectations whether they're internal or external customers what's the change in the regulatory environment that's going to put demands on us Um, what are the new techniques and practices we should be adopting to keep yeah. pace? Uh, where is our estate today? Uh, and, and have we under or over-invested uh, in areas and how do we want to correct that? And as we did that, we realized that we, we needed to launch a whole-scale transformation of the way an IT organization operated. And we wanted to do it differently and overcome a sense of change fatigue in the organization as well. Okay. So we realized we needed to re-energize, re-inspire the organization and, and start with a shift in culture and mindset and behaviors first before we took everybody on the hard miles to actually transform and go through the change curve. Um, and so we designed the way we wanted to change. And we launched an expedition, a five-year expedition called Da Vinci named Da Vinci because of the idea of bringing multiple disciplines, and particularly art and science together, okay. to leapfrog uh, levels of maturity rather than incrementally changing, a bit like Da Vinci did in his own uh, lifetime. And so 
we have this five-year journey mapped out with a number of peaks or significant shifts we need to make uh, along that way. And each peak has got a vision statement, so it describes what you'll be seeing, feeling, hearing, thinking and doing at the top of the peak when we've, we've, we've summited it as a team. Um, and what you'll see overall um, as, as they all come together at the end of the, the five-year journey. And um, the change to leadership approach and a mindset was really key. Um, and so we focused on growth mindset as the, mm. as the sort of the, the key that we wanted to turn. Um, having inclusivity um, as, as the core of our culture, embracing outside in thinking, failing fast and experimenting, driving a, a thirst for curiosity um, and innovation um, and working and recognizing the, your input and, and contribution to the team as well, as well as an individual and building on the idea of others. So that was all encapsulated in that. So we spent a lot of time in base camp um, setting those expectations <laughs> and role modeling and uh, really investing in our people leaders um, to, 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 to uh, lead that throughout their organizations. And then we, we have things like um, building stronger partnerships. Um, it's back to one of the second themes I talked about earlier. For us, we have 2,600 BT people in the IT team, and we have 9,500 subcontractors working for us and with us with, uh, through six Strata partners or subcontracting partners. And so it's a, it's a big organization to, to bring on that journey. And we can only do that if we are... Um, working in the right way, we've actually educated our partners on what we need them to help them to help us with. Yeah. Uh, what are the big challenges we're facing? How can we work together to accelerate uh, through some of those challenges together? We've never really taken that time. Yes. Uh, to say we want partner A to work with us on this topic and partner B to work on a different one with us. So we've we've done that, and we've also put in place recognition schemes to celebrate what we're doing together, um, as well. So it's both educating and celebrating um, and then we've transformed the way we're contracting as well so we've moved to outcome-based measures built-in transformation measures um, and we have a, a different way of evaluating that together every quarter to make sure we're on track um, human-centered design is a, is a is a is the the one skill we decided as a team we wanted every single person in our organization and our partners to acquire yes. over the next uh, two years so we're training everybody on human-centered design. The reason we're doing that is we recognize that many of our engineers and testers and designers didn't actually know the person they were designing for. Okay. Who is that end customer? Yes. And so we use personas now a lot where we say, you know, Neil is an engineer in open reach. He's uh, sat in his van on Tuesday morning in Oswestry. Street. It's snowing outside. He's got to get up a pole and fix a customer issue with a, with a cable. And yet we've given him an iPhone 4 um, to order stock on and it, you know his large cold fingers yes. can't possibly <laughs> stab the screen so we bring the, bring it to life the pain he's feeling yeah um, we do a lot of deep user research now we go and observe uh, Neil in his van in Osrestri and, and and experience the challenges he's having because often he doesn't he's normalized that problem yes. he's not uh, able to articulate how, the pain of it um, and then we, we do a lot of prototyping and we deliver minimum viable improvements to that product or service um, very very quickly. Um, and we then have a service owner who manages the evergreening um, of, of that service going forward. And we've done that to the IT organization as well. So we've stepped back and said, what does an IT organization do? Well, actually, you know, we architect some stuff, we design yeah. some stuff, we build it, we test it, we deploy it, and then we run it in life. And then we maintain it. So, But we've never stopped and designed how we do that in a standardized way, the most efficiently, using the best tools available. Okay. And so we have broken IT as an organization down into H2 services. And we're now using human-centered design to co-create 
and co-design each of those services, whether that's um, uh, data uh, and MI as a service, or whether it's a prototyping service or agile coaching service with the customer of that service. So we're designing in the experience they want and designing out the pain points they experience today and putting a strong service wrap around it, um, bearing in mind the consumption model, because you might want to self-serve. Or you might want us to work on it with you. Okay. Or you might want a fully managed service where we just you just give us a request and we, we do it for you. That would dictate the nature of the service wrap. So we're designing the way an IT organization should operate in this new world and reimagining every single touch point we have, both for our team and our customer. Um, and using the expedition analogy to wrap around that uh, as we adopt agile techniques, move to DevOps. Uh, drive insight out of the rich data sets we have or use automation to um, you know, improve the efficiency of our organization and move people to higher value tasks uh, all of that's coming together under the expedition theme and more important most important we're having fun so people are playing um, with the expedition theme you know we, we award t-shirts we have adventurer badges we have a 30-day <laughs> learning challenge which puts new skills into your backpack and you get a little badge to stick to your lanyard we have people going all over the world with their Da Vinci t-shirts on mini expeditions and taking photographs up mountains on motorbikes on whitewater rafts. Okay. So it's become a movement, um, not just a, a transformation. And how do you do that? Because you know, I'm, I'm hearing it's been very successful. I'm hearing we've got all of these things happening. Mm-hmm. This sounds like a, a significant change for a big organisation. Mm, it's huge. And, mm. you know, humans centered service design as you're saying it is about getting out there being Mm. with the customer understanding what their pain points are what's really going on and then Mm -hmm. iterating from there to to make things happen which is a completely different way of thinking yes i get you did all this stuff and and it worked but how did you actually get the hearts and minds singing? How did you get people having fun around this and not running for the hills? Mm. <laughs> well, we want them to go up run for the hills. Okay, yeah. As long as they've got a T-shirt on. As long as they've got a T-shirt on, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, it was about... Well, we, 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 again, we planned that very, very carefully. So we yeah. knew we would have you know, 13,000 people all at different points on the change curve. And we knew there would be some people who would instantly get it, welcome it with open arms and, th- and say, thank goodness yeah, this has arrived. Yeah. And there'd be others who would just say... You know what, I've seen seven of these before. They never stick. They never endure. Yeah. So we faced into that at the very beginning. We said, look, we know you're in a position of change fatigue. We know you've seen many, many initiatives. Here's how we're approaching this differently. And we showed them through our very first launch event how unified we were as a leadership team. Okay. We all dressed up in ex- different Explorer outfits. We all got on stage, dressed it up as a, as a big uh, base camp. And had some fun even in that launch. And we deliberately chose new imagery, uh, new vocabulary, a new tone of voice. Um, it was very non-corporate, right. uh, old BT, if you like. Um, very, it was very fresh, um, all in the expedition analogy. Um, and we were very playful in the way we set out the challenge ahead, the imperative for change, what the view from each peak would look like. Um, and it started to resonate because people could, nearly everybody in the room could say, I recognize that problem. I recognize that we need to fix that, but we've just never lent in and done that because okay. we've always been too busy. Yes. But actually, we, if we make the time and we co-create with our customers, we can actually do this. And we, then we started to train people in the techniques at scale um, and have them be involved in designing the future of how we operate. 
uh, and that's then grown. So we started off with six design squads. We've now got 24 design squads running. Wow. And they're just designing the IT organization services. What we've discovered is, as by accident, after we've trained people in human-centered design, they love it so much they want to go out and deploy it straight away, and they're starting to use it in projects. So now when I go to our teams in India or Glasgow or Cardiff, they race over and say, look where I've been using human-centered design to design this chatbot, and look how different it is because of that. Wow. Because we've started with the human problem. Um, it completely changed our approach, our understanding of what the, the human need was, and the outcome is therefore much different. We've even got people using it in Bangalore, in their communities, to solve waste management problems, and going into their primary schools and teaching human-centered design because they think it's so impactful and children should know about it too. Fantastic. As a way. So it's just grown and grown um, because it is fun. When you come into one of our Da Vinci rooms, it's dressed as an expedition. There is music playing. There's plants and flowers in the room. There's healthy snacks everywhere. <laughs> there's Lego. There's you know pipe cleaners. There's lots of tactile uh, things that allow people to experiment and prototype uh, and have fun as they're doing a huge amount of hard work. I mean, our, our boot camp that trains people up is a week-long experience, eight in the morning till six at night. It's exhausting, but that doesn't matter because the energy yeah. um, of the of the of the expedition is uh, carries them along, um, and so it's just grown from there. Superb. Mm. And. You're talking about playing, you're talking about fun, you're talking about pipe cleaners. Um, you, <laughs> and Lego. And Lego. <laughs> not, a quick plug for Lego. <laughs> Other brick things are available. Other uh, yeah. bricks are also yeah. viable. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also talked about a thir thirst for curiosity mm. and innovation. Mm -hmm. um, two sort of questions occur there. How do you get people who've, who've been sort of fairly rigid, I would imagine, some of the old BT people in, in terms of thinking. How do you get them to to sort of look up and, and step into that curiosity and mm. innovation? And I suppose the other part of that is often when people are trying that and, and doing new things, you get more mistakes. Mm. How do you deal with that as a leadership team? Mm -hmm. um, I think on the first point, how do you get them to, to look up, is actually to... Um, seed in uh, almost force in some outside in thinking and we've done that in a couple of ways we run events where we've brought in a lot of inspiring external speakers in um, and some of our, our vendor partners um, in to show us the art of the possible mm. not just from within telecoms but actually from other industries so I've only been in telecoms now for five years prior to that I spent 22 years in financial services so I've brought lots of examples in from financial services who are usually a little further ahead in adopting they're a bit of an early, more early, yes. an early adopter than telco are typically um, to show them that art of the possible and our vendor partners have brought us examples from pharmaceuticals and sport and media and um, uh, even the, the um, building industry and, and advertising industry so that just piqued the interest of gosh you know other industries are, are way ahead mm. um, but there is a journey to, 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 to catch up and accelerate and, and be there too um, and the second is we've, we've done a lot more external hiring Okay. So we've brought in you know, a massive number, quite a small number of individuals who've experienced the shifts we're trying to make at scale in other industries and planted them in teams as almost chief Sherpas to sort of show the way and um, raise the level of energy and uh, awareness of a, of a particular area like AI or chatbots yes. or robotics. Um, and then the way we have um, ensured that the there wasn't that sort of fear attached to it, 
is by describing the journey we're going to go on to adopt a new area and, and how much better it's going to be when we get to that top of that peak and what it means for each role. So if you're a business analyst, what does adopting robotics mean to you? Um, if you're working in one of our operation centres, what does it mean to you? And sometimes we've said, look, with robotics, there's a lot of media hype around the loss of, of jobs. Yes. The way we're going to approach it in BT is to think about it as augmenting our workforce, taking the robot out of the human, giving them a super suit to turn them into Iron Man so they have superhero abilities, yes. not to eliminate them. Um, and that has settled that down. So facing into sometimes some of the... The, the urban myths around some of these technologies, actually acknowledging that and saying, well, this is how we're going to approach it differently to make sure that doesn't happen here has been really helpful. Yeah. Uh, that, that innovation piece. So I guess that comes into that uh, comes for a better world. Mm. How, what is that better world? Is yeah. it better if all the jobs go? No. No. <laughs> no. If we use AI everywhere and introduce a lot of bias into our decision-making... Is that a good thing? No, of course it's not. So we're yeah. developing an ethical framework to guide where we do and don't use AI. And we're investing in brand new skills um, to detect when an AI algorithm is becoming biased and we can correct for that. And making sure that we deeply understand the data we use to train an AI um, and, and monitor how the, the decision logic changes. Um, that's a, a whole different yeah. mindset to software engineering where you used to code something and it sits there forever and it makes the same decision in perpetuity. Yes. Um, yeah. Like a lot of managers. Indeed. <laughs> 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 and what about the mistakes? How do you deal with the mistakes? With yeah. Mistakes and and, we, and we, we're making mistakes in, in two ways, I suppose. We're, we're doing a lot of transition. So we're moving work from one partner to another. We're reorganizing and restructuring our teams. So teams' responsibilities are changing. And of course, you know, you do drop things as you do that. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, as yeah. my grandma used to say. <laughs> and you can't transform an organization to scale without um, a drop in quality or a drop in throughput. But I think as long as you are, you engage your customer in the fact and the way you're approaching a transformation or a transition, and you explain the potential risks and how you've mitigated them as far as you can, but that there might be that drop in service or quality yes. for a period of time. And then you share the learnings you're making as you're going to say, we've recognised that issue, we'll ne this is what we're doing to correct it, and we'll never make it again, and here's how we know we won't. As long as you have that adult conversation, um, I think you can get through it. And of course, there are times when you get that phone call at three in the morning, you've taken down the retail stores again, yeah. like, whatever it is. And that's, it's, a, it's, it's not a nice position to be in when you've done that, and you yes. feel you know, incredibly um, responsible for that. But it, it is a necessary part of the process. Mm. And um, for me, it's, it's about role modeling as a leadership team that we take the learnings. Um, and we've taken very much the approach, a bit like a, um, a surgical team, where you review those mistakes, those fatal mistakes, um, and take, take the learnings out for them, make sure they're deeply embedded. And that because we're using human-centered design as a practice, it's all about iteration. It's all yeah. about delivering that minimum viable version of what you think the solution might be. And we're celebrating where that testing that early has fundamentally changed the approach we take Okay. and, and saved us from making a humdinger of a mistake. <laughs> um, and we've got a much better outcome from it. So it's about, for me, it's about being transparent about the fact you'll make mistakes. Yeah. Um, it's facing into them when you do and taking the learnings from them. And then it's celebrating 
the learnings you, you have got and, uh, and the failings you've made. Lovely. And I suppose, I'm not sure whether you found this, but my experience of stepping into the shoes of your customer to the degree that you're doing, mm. often you spot some of the mistakes beforehand. It's like, oh my God, the one thing we must not do is take exactly. the retail stores out because I now understand the impact that would make. Mm -hmm. Whereas IT departments in the past perhaps haven't always had or been renowned for that level of empathy. Yeah, and it is all about empathy. It's about really understanding that human impact. So now we talk about, instead of um, you know, a, a service or an application has been taken out for six hours, we talk about the agent lost hours. So how many hours with that poor call center agent on phones to customers answering hundreds of thousands of calls without the ability to service that customer? How did that make them feel? Yeah. And that's a very different conversation to have with a software engineer. Yes. Uh, to inspire them to focus on quality as they're making changes to, to the, the systems that support that, that call center agent. So it's mm. about making it more human, bringing those personas to life, telling those human stories and impacts um, to, to, to change that, that behavior and mindset in your, your IT organization. Lovely. So what sort of qualities do you think a leader needs to have in order to lead change or manage change? effectively i think uh first and foremost empathy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> understand that human element of the change whether that's the the team that you're using to deliver the change who will also be going through their change curve yes as well as the customers or the, the, the people who it ultimately affects um i think in this turbulent time um when there are so many unexpected things that affect your organization that you have to respond to resilience is really, really important. Um, and within that, it's sort of holding your nerve yeah. that actually the transformation is worth it. And yes, you'll have some short-term bumps um, and some you know, painful, frustrating conversations along that <laughs> journey. But hold your nerve. If you're clear on what the vision will be at the top of that peak, it, you know, you'll be convinced it's worth it. And you've got to provide the umbrella for your whole organization in that respect. It's not just about your resilience, it's your whole organization's resilience. Um, and then I think it's, it's about um, partnership and building relationships because yeah. very few of the shifts I'm, we're making in DaVinci are just within the walls of IT. They rely on partnership and, our, and colleagues and a lot of goodwill and, and work from our dynamic infrastructure organization that manages our data centers, um, from the service organization that builds um, our you know, TV applications that sit on top of our, of our IT stacks. And it also relies on partnership of, of digital marketing and product teams in the business, um, as well as the, the companies we work with to, to deliver these solutions. So as a leader, being able to build relationships that are founded on trust, common understanding of the journey ahead and the role we're, we're all playing um, helps you in times of those bumps get through them uh, yeah. without um, breaking the relationship. <laughs> they become more elastic. Great. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And you talked about resilience a little bit there as well. Not necessarily in terms of a leader, but you know, change is happening. It's constant. There's loads mm. of stuff going on. Some and the people... pace is increasing all the time, isn't it? So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And some people are getting a little bit overwhelmed by that. Mm. How could somebody prepare themselves effectively for change as an individual? Or how can somebody mm -hmm. become more resilient to change? Any thoughts in, in that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One of them is is looking after yourself. Uh, so making sure you're fit for the journey. You know, if you were going to go and climb Everest, you wouldn't just 
rock up with your rucksack and start walking, you'd spend months or years preparing physically and emotionally yes. for that experience. You'd be visualizing what the journey would be like. You'd be getting you know, physically fit. You'd be working in high altitude, low oxygen environments. You'd be carrying you know, weight, you'd be yes. building your muscles up. Um, and you'd be working, you know, be working to, to build the team that's going to take you to get you up the mountain. It's the same with with change and transformation. Um, you have to get fit for change. So you know, people always forget to sleep, yeah. <laughs> sleep, eat well, hydrate, build your support wrap around you. The, the combination of friends, family, and colleagues who you can reach out to when you are stressed, who can help energize and recharge you, not sap your energy, but actually give you confidence that you're on the right path or give you advice so, so it's, it can be sponsors mentors coaches people you meet at you know down the squash court or the pub um as well as the, the people you work with each day uh, and feeling brave enough to reach out when you need for help uh, from that support group you, you know we can't none of us can move at this pace with this level of change on our own it, it is a team sport now yes uh, in terms of technology uh, and driving change um and then you can learn about the sort of science of resilience and change as well. So understanding what the change curve actually is and the well-researched yes. psychology behind that that describes the states a person goes through as they are aware, made aware of a change, start to understand it, start to rationalise their own context and what impact it's going to have on them, and then actually start to implement the change and then look back and celebrate it. There's, there's science and research behind that that you can explore so you can deeply understand what people are going through emotionally and physically as yes. they're at different points on that change curve. And then being curious enough to ask the right questions and recognise where people are, are at at a point in time. You know, Having that pastoral role to check in um, and uh, course correct if you need to adjust how much information you're giving them, what support you're giving them, what recognition you're giving them yes. uh, along that journey. Great. And thinking um, you know, with all of this change, making all of these, as you say, there's so many things are in movement at the moment, almost putting a futurologist hat on. <laughs> what If somebody's thinking about how do I prep myself for the future, how do I start to think about you know, some of those things you mentioned and, mm. and getting ready for some of these changes, what careers or sectors or organisations or whatever do you think are going to be obsolete in the next few years? Or how do you think things are, are going to shift? And, and your team are probably making some of them obsolete, but there we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. No, I, some of them, it's very good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know if we'll see obsolescence necessarily. I think the way we consume things is going to change right. much more. I think we're going to, going to see a lot more move to digital channels. And the the digital channel of choice of the customer, not the one we're forcing them to use right now because it's convenient for us as organisations. Yes. Um, it'll be whatever is your channel of choice. You'll be able to interact with the company you want to in the way you want to at the time you want to, on the device you want to, or even no device at all, just sort of yeah. clicking in the air or whatever that uh, new interface will be. Um, I think in terms of what's what's coming, I think it, we're going to see a trend towards hyper-personalisation. So it will feel like we deeply know who you are and all your interactions with us and your needs of us, uh, and we're responding to that quickly in the way you want. 
um, that that will become the norm. Yeah, and that's a really high bar of expectation uh, to to meet. So I think as as people in an organisation as leaders, you've got to realise that that is the way we're going. Yeah. And so acquiring skills like, like human-centered design, like service design, adopting agile and DevOps techniques, which allow you to just respond faster to an inevitable pace of change, yes. are absolutely key um, to you know, building that resilience, building that elasticity and recognizing that instead of reviewing that every one to two to three to four years, it's now one to two to three to four months. Yes. You need to be constantly checking in. Do I have the right skills in the right place? Um, am I thinking far enough ahead to, and am I taking, I'm, I'm going to have to take bets on what new skills I'm going to have to build. We were talking about it yesterday in terms of our strategic resource planning here. Three years ago, I should really have been able to bet that chatbots would become a big thing and build out a team ahead of that and take that bet. And I might have got it wrong. Chatbots yes. may not, may not have become what they are today and uh, the increasing use of them. But actually, I need to be confident enough to say, I will invest, I will build out that team of 20 who can be my center of excellence and build chatbot solutions You know, two to three years from now. Yes. How do I grow into that? Rather than um, arriving at the day when the first request comes in and I have to <laughs> then respond <Yes. laughs> slower than my customer would like. Okay. Um, and that I, I get how one can do that with the resources of, of BT. Mm. Challenges as it might be, even it's still not easy. <laughs> how, how do you think if you were leading a smaller organization or a startup mm. or a yeah, had slightly less resource, mm -hmm. how do you think you could get out ahead? Mm. Or, yeah, are there advantages at, at play in that? I think there's pros and cons of being in a smaller organization, you don't have um, the scale of specialism in, in any group of people. Um, yeah. So, I think you need to grow what I call T shaped people who have one or two deep specialisms, but also have been developed to have generalist skills. So in technology, they might have, you know, be great Java and .NET developers, yep. but they should also be great scrum masters, product owners, project managers, and UX designers. Yes. Um, so that's the sort of T-shape acquisition of skills I think we're going to start seeing um, over the next few years, because you, you're going to have to have core capabilities around being able to manage change, being able to communicate well, being able yeah. to un deeply understand needs um, and come up with solutions and problem solve. Um, but the actual technology you respond to that in is going to be moving so fast. you just got to be good at acquiring the next coding language or the next tool chain or yeah. the next methodology or best practice. Um, so that growth mindset I talked about earlier is 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 really key yeah fostering that growing that up in our education system um making people realize that they can't just do a set of exams and then they're done learning it's an everyday thing um, yes and you're gonna have to drive it yourself by the way <laughs> <laughs> which is which it's is quite a, a big change from what we change. have at the moment yeah, so much. um how should we change education <laughs> <laughs> um i think I think industry can play a really big role. Um, I think given the scale of our education system, it's always going to move at quite a slow pace. Um, but I think industry by engaging with schools and with universities to um, inject extra content, extra experiences in is, is a way forward. And, and working more closely with the government and with the Department of Education to help them think through what does the future world of work need of our new next generation of workers? 
what new skills do we need in that don't fit the standard curriculum but are actually more about managing change about resilience about yeah. uh, eq um you know they're not traditional school topics today but um we're going to need those yes. in, in volume in many forward. ways they're the sort of the softer things as yeah. they've been talked about mm. in the part which are like a nice have yeah, they must-haves for me now. They are becoming the hard thing, the, the, the hard skills, the, 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 the deep technical and behavioural competencies we now need. Yes. Um, yeah, we need to get rid of that word soft. It's not doing us any favours because it's I, almost I like you can have them if you like on top of your core technical skills, but actually we need to flip that around now. That's going to be more important than, uh, than the, the, the depth of, of technology skills because a lot of that technology will be automated you know, yes. we're automating writing code now, which changes the the, the needs of a, of a software developer. Yeah, and that that's ironic in many ways, isn't it? It's <laughs> built in obsolescence or something in there. But I, the, I think that that does talk to the way that we need to train people to think about the world. And I guess that's mm. part of the motivation behind these podcasts as well. Is yeah. partly for ourselves to be thinking like that, and partly to mm -hmm. take other people on a conversation with us yeah. uh, around that. To be thinking about how can we look at the world in a slightly different way and prepare ourselves for the fact mm. that some of the things that we take for granted as our core skills right now may not be mm -hmm. part of the jigsaw in the years to come. Not at all. No, I think I think the whole idea of a fixed core competency is going, and it's going to be a fluid set of capabilities you constantly refresh and reacquire and and transform throughout your career. Mm. With that in mind, um, we talked. You, know, you mentioned artificial intelligence in mm. in passing uh, as we went. You are obviously an expert in these things. Will artificial intelligence ever really develop heart and soul or what what's the mm. stuff that it can't do what where are those gaps that or robotics or, or whatever that we should be thinking mm, there might be a gap in there for us i mean i suppose mm -hmm. traditionally you first knew me as a as a trainer mm. i guess and, and for me that is very replicable mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we're doing a lot more digitally and, and thinking about how how we can take inside out or outside in thinking and, and help develop that and how we can model best practice, how we can use the, the sort of technology we're using today mm. in a different way, letting go of some of those old ways ways of being. But mm -hmm. what, what are those gaps? What are the things that AI will be able to do and, and won't be able to do from your perspective? Oh, it's only in the last 18 months that AI has got to parity with humans on text recognition, converting voice to text, and on image recognition. So it's actually, although we've been working on AI since 1956, yes. it's only in the last 18 months that the combination of compute power, our understanding of the way to, 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 to develop algorithms and train them, and the vast amounts of data is available to train them, have all come together to, um, to, to enable that parity to be achieved. I mean, anyone who uses any of the voice-enabled platforms out there and ends up shouting at them because they don't understand their accent. <laughs> well, no, exactly what I mean. I still don't feel that in the consumer-available products, the voice recognition is where it needs to be at all. I get so frustrated with my devices. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's not far, but that is you know, months away from becoming uh, you know, available to, to the average household. Um, 
so those kind of things that we traditionally associate with humans are absolutely possible with AI. What I still don't see um, any movement towards is any understanding of empathy. Right. I think we can simulate empathy. There was a, uh, a beautiful experiment run at MIT using a, a lamp to mimic human head and body movements and the colour of the lamp and the intensity of the light being used to um, give you an idea of an emotion. Okay. So, you know, it was blue and it dropped its little head. It yeah. looked quite sad. <laughs> <laughs> if it started bouncing around and it was red, it looked pretty frustrated and angry. Yeah. But that's just a simulation. It's not the lamp deciding to react to a set of circumstances and deciding it is sad and therefore is dropping its head and is going to turn blue. Yes. Um, we've programmed it to, to make us think that's what it's doing, but it, it's not. So I think empathy is something we don't have a solution for right now. I think what we're also seeing at the moment is um, we are training AI using historic data. Our data is by nature historic. It's already out of date. Yeah. the moment it's captured. Yes. If we're using historic data to train algorithms to take decisions, then it is inherently biased. As we move to a more inclusive future, then it's going to be biased against diverse groups. If we're using data around household representatives, at the moment that's probably gender bias. If we're using data about the adoption of more modern services, that could be aged bias. Um and so we haven't, we haven't got a way yet to automatically detect, oh, I'm introducing bias here. Yes. So we're, we're, going, to, we're going to need humans in that equation to continuously monitor, is bias in, being introduced? Do we truly deeply understand the data we're using to train it? Yes. And how is it evolving its decision-making basis? And how do we course-correct for that? Lots of research going on about how to detect bias. But actually to fix bias, I think, will still require humans for quite some time. I think we will solve for it, but I think yep. it's 10, 10, 15 years away. Um, but I think empathy is the, is the biggest gap the big I see. And I hope, my hope is that organisations like ourselves and governments and societies start to decide where they actually do want to maintain human interaction. That sense of social connection and networking, you can't put an AI in for... I mean, you see a film like Her and uh, where you've got the main actor um, having a relationship with his AI assistant on his, on his device. Yes. Really? I'm not quite sure. I hope, <laughs> I hope we, don't, we don't replace human relationships with, with algorithms. Um, and so I think there'll, be, there'll always be situations where you just want to have a conversation with a human, whether that's a, a you know, diagnosis of a medical illness and then treatment options, or whether it's uh, just, just social connection and collaboration that that's we as humans just innately need. Yes. Mm. You spoke at the beginning of our conversation about this move within BT and organisations towards social purpose and, mm. and that driving that becoming a core uh, of who you are as an organisation and what's going to be necessary in order to attract talent and customers and, and things like that mm -hmm. in the future. With that in mind, we spoke to Giles Gibbons recently, and one of the things that he was saying was he believes that there's going to be less, less difference between charity and business mm. in the years to come. And in, in fact, maybe you don't need both uh, mm -hmm. names and, and it is just one, one pot in the future. What are your thoughts in that area or the, the way... The, the sort of social and commercial 
drivers mm. will either come together or, or diverge. I'd love that to be true. Um, that would be a, a fantastic evolution, wouldn't it? Where you, you can trust industry to um, solve social problems um, that, that charities are stepping in, into at the moment. Um, I think we're a long way away from that. Um, but I could see how we could get there, actually. Yes. Or we could see partnerships between a sort of social enterprise or a charity with a with an organisation that being a long enduring partnership that's strategic for both of them and part of their core purpose. Um, but I think there are a few barriers to that at the moment, <laughs> <laughs> not least of which is the you know, the need to 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 create profit for shareholders. Yes. I think where you get purpose aligning, that will be possible. Um, but it's unusual at the moment for a charity's purpose and a corporate organization's purpose to be to be fully aligned yes. right now. Okay. Yeah. I'd love it to be true. <laughs> well, I, I agree, and I, I think there are opportunities. start that organization. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll do it together. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so we, we first met through BT Tech Women. I'd mm. sort of love to just, before we finish talking, touch on on that shortly because I think it is an incredible change project mm -hmm. in, in its own right um, and I th there have been moves over the last few years around sexual equality um, gender gay rights whatever um, what do you think's created that and how do you think that the, the things are how did that change happen? You know, we've got had um, mm. the gay marriage vote in Ireland, for instance, and you know, yeah, the BBC great. making big changes. Mm. Um, some of which I think are great. Some of which I I question. Feel a bit forced. Uh, yeah, they? <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily saying it's all perfect. But how do you think those changes happen? And maybe mention a, a little mm. bit about BT Tech Women because I think it's such a great example of mm. of incredible success I, I i do wonder if social media has driven it and um and the sort of evolution of, of communications and collaboration across the globe because i think it's when a country a group a religion a sexuality realizes that they're being treated differently where they are to other places in the world that that creates a cause for action yeah. um to change you know their their, their local situation um, and that the sharing of ideas, the sharing of needs, the sharing of ways to affect change uh, can happen instantly now, rather than you know having to get on a boat and sit in a post bag for ten weeks as it crosses you know, yes. <laughs> crosses Australia <laughs> or whatever. Um, so I do wonder if that has what sparked it, and and underpinning it is the um, almost global rail against against government against institution that's happened as well on the scene you know the, the trump era and yeah. brexit and uh, the arab spring was one of the earlier ones um so i think that's that's what i would use to to say that's that's the spark of why we've seen all these these movements um and the gender one is has had probably the biggest share of that discussion and debate globally in, yes. in all forms of media um certainly the last 12 to 18 months i would say um and i think that's a combination of um, injustice, sort of the the whole sexual harassment debate, the the, the gender power um, disparity uh, on every on a, from every every aspect of yeah. society, um, and we we focused our tech women, we actually developed our tech women program because we realised that we didn't have 
an organization that was retaining our female talent we were we were losing more female talent than we were acquiring we weren't seeing women develop up our organization in the same proportion as their male colleagues and um, it all started with an executive you know, Clive Selly uh, who was CTIO at the time but is now CEO of OpenReach asking well why, why is that happening you know go, go figure that out understand it and so we went to the data yes and we first of all proved out that that was actually happening um, and it was happening at higher volumes than we even suspected and then it's about having individual conversations with the women to say you know why do you not feel you can go for that promotion you can move up the organization yes. or rotate around it why do you feel you have to leave to take the next step in your career and what they told us was that they didn't feel the they could they had the skills and experience for the role descriptions as they were described they felt it was a boys club people were were appointing people like them and as the mm. majority of male managers and leaders were appointing people in there. Ilk, it was generally men yes. <laughs> that they'd worked with. Um, and so we, we, we designed a, a year-long development program to solve for the problems the women were telling us uh, they had. And a lot of it was rooted in confidence. So we've addressed confidence, um, impact, gravitas, power politics and networking, personal brand, commercial awareness, strategy, uh, managing and leading change, and innovation as the key topics they told us they wanted help with. And um, we've now had 1,500 women go through the program. Incredible. 970 of those are this year in this year's program. And we're now running a, an in-person program in the UK in eight locations and uh, two in India. Um, and we've, had, we've eliminated attrition from that, that population, which is extraordinary. Yeah, I um, think... It you say that very quickly, but I think that's really worth yeah, We have stopped <laughs> women leaving our organization <laughs> in I mean, that, that once we invest in them in that way. Yes. And we've also seen, you know, 68% of the alumni to date last year had gone to get bigger, better roles in the organization. So they're starting to progress. Yes. But what's been incredible and almost like an unexpected side effect is the network those 1,500 women now have. They wear their Tech Women badge with pride. They are an incredibly active alumni they get teams together to join our innovation competition, the Challenge Cup. Yeah. They're solving business problems together. They're networking across the organization to support each other, writing CVs and going for interviews and being given the courage to just go for it. Um, and they're also going out into the wider world now, sharing the blueprint for, blue, for, for tech women that we'd love other organizations, to, including our customers, to adopt because yeah. we know it works. Yeah. Um, but also going to schools to inspire young children to take on STEM subjects, helping recruit our grads and apprentices and showing them relevant female role models can have great careers here, so you can too. Yeah. Um, and we've even got three women uh, as spokespeople for the BBC when they talk about technology. Um, so we're changing the face of technology on TV, uh, which is, is fabulous. We've won three external awards. So we've benchmarked ourselves and shown that we're doing something different. We're having a yes. bigger impact. And now we're just generously sharing that out to whoever wants to know about it. You know, we would love them to replicate it because it's only having an ecosystem response as all doing this. We can build the pipeline and then we can fight over who gets the talent. But let's get, <laughs> let's get the women in STEM first. Uh, then we'll arm wrestle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's incredible. I'm very proud to have you're a huge part of it at the beginning, well, having us you. design it and, uh, and deliver it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's an absolute privilege to, to be part of it and also to, to be working with a team that genuinely want the change. And right at the beginning, we were talking about this move towards social purpose. And for mm. me, I, you know, I was cheekily asking about, well, how do you actually do it? How do you make this not greenwashing and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff? Uh, the, I think... 
tech women is a, a great example mm. of how you do that. Yeah, it's investing you meaningfully. Very real. Yeah, you know, yes. we've, we've 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 put some meaningful budget behind it. We've got all of the um, managing directors who are women, which is 18 of us, involved in delivering the program. We've brought in great partners like yourselves and other companies to help create fresh, you know, world-class content. And we're, we're taking them to great places to deliver that and putting a, a great support wrap around them. You can't do this by getting them together for networking three times a year. Yeah. This has got to be a meaningful intervention. It does take budget. It does take resources. It does take, you know, outside in thinking and, and great content um, and interventions to, to make a difference. And if you do those three, those, those four things, you have a, a, a winning, winning success. Agreed. Especially if you put podcasts with you and I in there Especially as well. Especially the Neil Almond podcast. I know. That was probably what did it, you know. It was. <laughs> Fantastic. Rachel, um, any last things you, you have to add on the, the subject of change and transformation? I think for me the secret is spend as much time designing the change you want to make, the approach you're going to take to do that, and even down to the very small things, the small details as you do in delivering it. Um, if you get that half and half, you, you will make a massive difference. If you race into delivering it, um, you will hit some <laughs> some walls. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Rachel, thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting us uh, at BT Centre. And um, I look forward to the adventure ahead. Thank you. Fantastic. It's been a delight today. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. Uh, and if you're willing, take a moment to leave us a rating or review. This podcast is also video recorded. So if you want to see our guests in glorious Technicolor, please head over to YouTube. Uh, I believe it's youtube.com forward slash 91 Untold. But as with all our social accounts, just search for 91 Untold or the 91 Untold Change Project, and I'm sure you'll find us. Now, of course, this is intended as a project. So if you want to get involved in the discussion, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, please head over to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter um, and join the conversation. <laughs>